Well, tonight I'm going to finish up the book of Ephesians, or finish going through it with the last two verses in Ephesians chapter 6. We began this morning looking at the final greetings that Paul gives us and hopefully looking at it in the context that the rest of the letter gives the, the, the whole thing. Christians are not fighting a battle alone. There are other believers who stand with them in the fight. And we ought to be careful to encourage one another as we go through this. Paul encourages the Ephesians. Tychicus was an encouragement to Paul. And Paul was sending Tychicus to Ephesus to be an encouragement to them. It's all about encouragement. That's what the church exists for in many ways. Paul was not some kind of missionary who kept what he was up to or his private affairs to himself. Instead, he wanted the people of God to know what was happening in his lives. He wanted them to know how their prayers were being answered, and he also wanted them to know how Satan was working to oppose God's work. His motive in doing this was not selfishness. He was trying to share something with the churches because he wanted them to be encouraged as a family of God. Nowhere Absolutely nowhere in the New Testament do we find any instance of an individual believer being isolated. Christians aren't supposed to be isolated. Christians are like sheep, and they flock together. The church is an army, and the soldiers need to stand together and fight together. This evening, as we look at the final benediction that Paul's giving to the church in Ephesus... I want to point out that we really come full circle from the way Paul starts his letter. He begins in Ephesians by saying, grace and peace to you. And he's going to end by saying, peace and grace to you. It's the same way that he starts his doxology. And hopefully something that stands out to you as I read the last two verses, three words continue to ring in my ear, peace, love, and grace. See that Paul was a prisoner in Rome, but he was richer than the emperor. No matter our circumstances in Christ, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings. That's something Christians can take home and take hold of. Well, let's read those last four verses, and then we'll discuss the last two. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now I think this would make a great Christmas sermon just getting started because it hits all of the themes of the Advent. Peace and love, and we're only missing faith, and He has grace in here. We just need to add in hope, and I think that's a pretty orthodox, liturgical Christmas service. But it's not Christmas time, so I won't make it one. But I think we have our three points for this evening mapped out for us. Peace, love, and grace. The question we should ask is, how do these things relate to each other? Start with peace. When I read the word peace in Ephesians, it stands out that throughout the entire letter that Paul has written so far, peace is almost the undercurrent. 
It's what carries it all along. It's the melody throughout the whole song. Since the beginning, Ephesians 1-2, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Peace is what establishes us from our old self to our new self and our identity with one another. Paul even makes the point of saying that some of you all in this church might not have gotten along before. Some of you were Jews and Gentiles and you, didn't, you weren't friends before you were in Christ. In fact, you were enemies. But now in Christ, there's peace between you. There might be different backgrounds represented by, within the church, but through Christ's peace, you're united together. The peace discovered in Christ is displayed in our lives. Ephesians 4.3 takes it a step further. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, it's peace that establishes unity in the church. I don't think there's any question that peace is understood in our world. Most people walk around and they say, we need world peace. It's important that we pursue world peace or at least look for some way of establishing peace. And those that don't have a global worldview, that's okay. Or a global perspective, that's fine too. The rest of us, normal people, just say, I need peace in my family. How many stories or instances can you think of in your own life where children don't speak to their parents because of falling outs? How many instances can you think of where moms and dads can't work together for the benefit of their own kids because of falling outs? How much dysfunction do we see even just in the home? And we say, we just need peace. I think it's evident that peace is something that we all strive for and long for. But how do we define peace biblically? Well, this is important, and I've tried to do it before. I've said before, and hopefully you guys remember, peace is not simply the absence of conflict. Peace is defined biblically. It has to be a picture of what Christ has done for us. The biblical picture of peace is quite different. Ephesians 2.17 goes on. That Christ came and preached peace to those of us who were far off and peace to those who were near. Given us the picture of Jews and Gentiles, the Jews being those who were near because they were closest to the gospel, because they were closest to the promises of God, the covenant of Abraham, and then also to the Gentiles who were far off, separated and alienated between us. And what has peace done? It's brought both of these people together. It's actually brought peace to both of these different groups. Paul, of course, is expounding Isaiah 57 here when he says that these two groups have been brought near through the same covenant of peace with God. I ask the question, why is it that families can live in such turmoil, that the world can be in such dysfunction, that even our private lives can be discombobulated and everything else? Why is it that these things can seem jumbled? Why there can be pain and suffering? Why is it that even Christians can endure depression? Why is it that sickness continues to discourage people? Why is it 
that our lives are just messed up. Looking at this biblically, God created a good world. He created all things that are good. And we spoiled it. If I was speaking to children, I'd say our naughtiness spoiled it. We took a good thing and made it bad. This isn't a view of our will overcoming God's. It's simply an understanding that rebellion has separated the world from God. When the Bible says that we were once children of wrath, when it describes the world as living in the domain of Satan, it's not saying that all things are imperfect. Rather, it's making it clear that we've alienated ourselves from God, that we've entered into enmity with God. That as a perfect and holy God, we must, if we have any understanding of our relationship without Christ and God, it must be one of enmity because of God's perfect goodness. I think Jesus says it best. The biblical understanding of peace depends and hinges completely on who is Christ. John 16:33 In me you can have peace. That's a pretty bold statement. If we're going to take the Bible seriously and we look at this, ultimately we can only lean one way or the other. Either Jesus was a very very good man or he was a very bad man. To make a statement like this that in him you can have peace that the solution for everything is inside of him, he's either very good or very bad. Either he's telling the truth or he's deceiving the whole world and leading us into nihilism. I say that he's a good man. That he's telling us the truth when he says that we can have peace through him. That peace exists because of him. Paul goes on, Peace be to the brothers. And love with faith. It's connected to love. Peace is actually the expression of love that God gives His children. The establishment of peace. Not just the absence of conflict, but actually entering into a real relationship is an expression of God's love for us. Love appears three times in these two little bitty verses. It's anchored in what Paul has written throughout the rest of this letter again. Ephesians 1.15, he goes back and he expresses his love for these people, their shared love rather. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Sometimes we wonder what could it possibly be that is going to tell us that we're finally made it as mature Christians or that our maturity is progressing. And sometimes we say that it might be our understanding of the Bible, our ability to memorize Scripture, our, um, our concepts of theology and how orthodox they are or whatever else. The only measurement of Christian maturity found in the Bible is how well do we love others? What was God's expression of love? It was peace. And this is interesting. Because I think love's another one of those words that we struggle to define. It's easy to love people who love me. 
Most of the times when we talk about love, and most of the times when we hear people talking about love, it's normally an expression towards people that already love them, that they share a common affection. I love it whenever people are describing relationships and they say, well, I always give everyone a blank slate and everyone's my friend until they give me a reason not to be my friend. I hear that a lot. Everyone starts out as friends until they give me a reason not to be my friend. But what is the biblical model of love? Not just that. It's one step further, right? God loves the world when their back is turned against him, when they're in rebellion, when this old self, this child of wrath is present. It's an easy thing to love someone when they like me. Can you love someone when they hate you? Because the picture that the Bible gives us when he calls us children of wrath, it's not just a picture of, hey, we didn't know what we were doing and we were being bad. The picture of rebellion that the Bible gives us is I despised God. I hated him. I ran against him. I rallied against him, even when I didn't know it. Because my conscious brain already had all the revelation of God necessary to know that he was perfect and holy. And despite that, I exchanged the glories of the Creator so that I could worship creation, most of the times myself. That's an expression of hate. That's loathing. And when we understand how righteous God is, Christians gathered together and putting those thoughts together and starting to see this old self and really how condemnable it is, it's revolting. The greater our understanding of God's love, the more despicable sin looks to us. A lot of times what we see is we make sin not so bad. And then we turn to God's love and it's not so great. Rather than focusing on how bad or not bad sin is, we need to be paying attention to God's love. And naturally, as we see how great it is, when we see how magnanimous it is, when we see how triumphant it is, when we see how amazing it is, the preponderance of our understanding of God's love naturally leads us to see sin as wickedness and it naturally drives us away from it. This is why we say in our study of the armor of God, whenever we're putting on the breastplate of righteousness, this is not something that we make ourselves. It's through a reliance on God that we're able to have any comprehension of what righteousness looks like because we see His love, this great expression of God's love, this radically brain-altering, reality-shaping love that is demonstrated for us through Christ. And that yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice in verse 23, love doesn't exist on its own. Paul says, and love with faith. This might be the fourth word that we should pay attention to, but I think it's tangent here. Faith is, we've, we've likened it to just believing in something. And this is something that has troubled me, especially in recent days as I've interacted with a few particular people who are near and dear to me that claim to be Christian, that I cannot say with any sense of confidence that I actually believe no Christ. 
love exists with faith. Faith is more than just believing in something. If faith is believing in something, it also must be trusting that thing in which we believe in. The hallmark illustration is that I can have faith in a chair. I have faith that that chair will support me, but unless I actually sit down in it, I have not believed in it. Some people have believed in the historicity, the veracity of this Jesus Christ fellow. They've even believed in the eternal state of heaven and hell, the imminent return of Christ and the judgment of the whole world. But they have not actually put their faith in Christ as their Savior. Unless you sit down, it does not help you to just believe. You may be orthodox in your belief, but maybe you've never taken the trust factor as a reality. If that's the case, you are not saved. Unless we put our trust in Christ, there is no salvation. We're moving right along. Our final word is grace. Beginning in verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I pointed out that Paul matches his doxology with his benediction. And those are just some fancy words to say at the beginning of the letter. He's giving a doxology or he's glorifying God. His entire first opening statement is, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins by moving beyond that and talking about the grace that comes from God and then to the peace. And now he's almost in reverse order, said, You have the peace and you also have the grace. All of these things pulling it together because they are all throughout the entire letter. Can we understand faith and not understand what grace is? These three words, the reason I've focused on them as I look at these two passages is because these are words that get thrown around a lot that I don't think we've taken the time to define. We look at peace and it's just, well... If peace is parents just not talking, that's not the kind of peace that children need. Parents need reconciling peace. That's what children desire when we talk about peace between nations. Well, that doesn't mean we're just not engaging with each other and pretending that the other one doesn't exist. Well, it's a harmonious relationship with one another, right? When we talk about peace within the church, it's not just ignoring the issues that come up by doing life together because issues come up when you do life together. But it's facing them head on. It's not averting from them, but it's actually embarking on the journey towards reconciliation, whatever that might look like. When we talk about love, well, and here's, I think, the biggest part of the definition for love. It's a choice. 
When most people talk about love, and especially when we see it come up, love is, is some sort of emotion. It's something that we're not necessarily in control of. Well, I love this person because, well, I love them. They haven't done anything to cause me to not love them. But when we look at God's model, you know what love is? It's a choice. He decides to love those whom he saves. We do marriage counseling. It's going to come a day. When your loved one is going to make you really angry, it's going to happen. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's going to come a day when you're going to feel betrayed. There's going to come a day when you feel let down. And you know what you need to remember on that day? There's nothing that could happen to you that man has not already done to God and he has still chosen to love them. It's a radical definition. Grace? How would we define that? Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace is God's unmerited favor to those who do not deserve it. It's Him giving us something that doesn't belong to us just because He wants to. Well, grace is actually an expression of God's love. Isn't God's love part of this gift of grace? These things are all connected all over again. We cannot understand grace without understanding this Christian view. If I don't understand who I was outside of Christ, I will never be able to understand my need for grace at all. This is the problem. If I do not understand who I am outside of Christ, I will never be able to wrap my head around what grace is. So long as I look at myself as an inherited third-generation Baptist and everything else who's always grown up in church and everything else, and there's not really a distinction between my life before I was saved and when I became saved and after I was saved, I will never understand grace. Because if I don't have a comprehension, if I, don't have the, if I haven't spent the time thinking about who I was in rebellion against God, no matter how young I was, I won't understand what it means for him to have reached out and saved me. Because ultimately I'm walking around thinking, well, I didn't really need grace. I wasn't that bad to begin with. And there's a lot of Christians with that attitude. And it's folly. If you're walking around without an understanding of how incredible it is, that a perfect God reached out through time, put His Son on the cross, reconciled Him to reconciled, used Him as a substitution to reconcile you back to Him, and you don't see how necessary that was. You're missing it. Even looking at what it means to take up spiritual armor and consider how easy it is to become distracted by the spiritual warfare that takes place in our lives, whether that's temptation, whether that's serious literal attacks, whether that's governments doing things that are antithetical to a biblical way of life, whether that's, I mean, we could take this kind of to a straw man argument to an extreme extent, and we could say, what if Christianity was outlawed? 
Spiritual warfare is a real thing. These things, that's taking place in other parts in the world. It's taken place throughout history. And actually, you know what is reassuring for me? When persecution has been the highest, the Christian testimony has been the strongest. Because when Christians are reminded that they are in constant need of grace, when they completely rely upon God, when they give everything up for God. Their faith is the strongest, their testimony is the most approachable, and they actually care about making sure that people hear this testimony in light of everything going on around them. Grace is an amazing thing because it keeps us from being short-sighted. We look around at our world and we say, it's not so bad. What am I really saving people from? We've taken our eyes off of the cross, not just to go off and live our lives, but so that we, would ha- we wouldn't have to think about why it was necessary to begin with. The more I understand who I was before I was in Christ, the more I can look at my neighbor and realize how much they need this grace. If there's no difference between the day before we were saved and the day after we were saved, If we say that we've come to know Christ and there's no change, we really must consider whether we actually have come to know Christ. Do we think that this transformation concept that's promised us in the Scriptures, do we think this matter of justification that Paul writes about fervently, do we think that all of these things actually have the ability to deliver us from sin and its consequences? If we actually believe that, shouldn't we contend for the faith in a different way? Wouldn't we be more lively? Wouldn't we be more zealous about sharing what we have with the world around us? I pray that these three words would become important to us. Peace, love, and grace. Loved ones, without grace, religion in itself will actually keep us from understanding the love and the peace of God. During the Enlightenment period, philosophers like Voltaire made comments about Christianity that went something along like this. And this is my paraphrase of Voltaire, because you don't want to hear me actually quote him because he was French, and French people are just moderately obnoxious. Voltaire said Christianity exists to make miserable people miserable so that they have to keep coming back to be less miserable. Without grace, that is exactly what all religion does. It makes miserable people miserable. Reminding us constantly that you're never going to be perfect, that you're never going to measure up. Grace is a completely different message. It's despite that, God reaches out, loves you, and extends peace to you. This is a big deal. This morning, my Sunday school class ran over as I was meeting with the students, and we were talking about prayer. And one of the questions I asked, and I thought this was really interesting, does your prayer life 
Would God be pleased with your prayer life as it is? And everyone said, I love the... We've got brilliant students because they knew exactly how to cop out of answering that question. They said, well, my prayer life will never be perfect because I'm not perfect. That's a good Sunday school answer. That's not what I asked, is it? Is God pleased with your prayer life right now? Here's how I know that we haven't wrapped our heads around grace. Here's how I know it's not a tangible part of the way that we worship God. Because we have a view of pleasing God as some impossible task. It's not impossible to be faithful to God. We have a God who's actually seeking us out and His measurement of actually being pleased is that the way that we honor and glorify Him is proportional to our current spiritual maturity. There's a paradox in that. The more that we worship and glorify Him, the more mature we become. The more we worship and glorify Him, the more mature we become. This is a self-reinforcing circle. I've just invented perpetual energy. It's spiritual energy, but it's there. And I didn't invent it, God did. Is it possible to actually have a prayer life that God is pleased with? It actually is. Is it possible to actually have a Bible study that glorifies God? Is it possible to have a um, church that has no sin in it whatsoever? Not on this side of heaven. Can that church still glorify God? Can he still be pleased with that sinful church? This is the amazing testimony of grace that God can be pleased with all of our flaws and everything else so long as we are faithful to make sure that our maturity matches our level of worship and that these things would reinforce each other and that as we grow in this grace, our understanding of love is going to become bigger. And as our understanding of love becomes bigger, our expression of love is going to become bigger. And as our expression of love becomes bigger, our extension of grace to the world is going to become more pronounced. God has a wonderful plan. And that plan's in His church. Tonight, I say all of this to people who have met Jesus. To people that have been bound together by peace that is established in our knowledge of Him. I want to pray and ask that this week that we would wrap our heads around this amazing grace. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us when we did not love you. Thank you for pursuing us when we ran away. Thank you for taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Father, thank you for your covenant your covenant with us that establishes us as your people. God, thank you for the way that you are glorified as we attempt to worship you. Lord, I pray this week as we spend time meditating and ruminating on the thoughts of Scripture, on the magnitude of grace and understanding even what is incomprehensible, 
that as we prepare to come together next week and Wednesday night, that we would know how to apply this truth to our lives. Father, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.